0: Hello, I'm Joshua Grisberg,
1: And I'm Jacob Friedman.
0: And this is Gen Zers Hot Politics.
1: This is where two members of the next generation of American adults talk about what's going on in the world.
0: Since the whole world is on fire, we might as well take a crack at delivering some insightful, definitely non-Twitter commentary and a side helping
1: of comedy. Okay, so our story today is about Michael Flynn. I've already ranted about this uh, ad nauseum, so I'm just going to say this for my part. A Trump nominee just told the Judge Emmett Sullivan to allow the Justice Department to drop the Michael Flynn case. Okay, that is the story. And given everything we know about Flynn, how he admitted to lying to the FBI, how he was warned about by Obama, former Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates how the reports that he tried to kidnap a cleric to deport him back to Turkey for foreign policy points. He, he talked to Kislyak, the, Mus- the Russian ambassador, during the transition about sanctions. The whole reason Justice Department, you know, wanting to let the case go was that Bill Barr wanted to prove that the handy Tucker Carlson, you know, Janine Pirro you know, you know, conspiracy theorists on Fox News and OAN were right that you know Michael Flynn was set up, and it only it takes a heroic, patriotic official to set him free. I mean, it's ridiculous. Michael Flynn admitted to what he was charged of. Why to the FBI? It it doesn't make sense. I mean, I don't know, Joshua. What do you think?
0: Listen, I I can tell you this much: the legal system. I think I don't I don't like the way the legal system acted in this case. I mean. It's pretty much showing how the legal system has become political, and I find that very disappointing. I think legal matters and political matters should be very separate. And here is Michael Flynn playing legal matters and politics at the very same time, and I find that very disappointing.
1: I mean, if the shoe was on the other on the other foot, I mean Republicans would be, you know, they'd be calling for the for the direct impeachment, you know, daily of whoever would be in the White House. It, it would be like Eric Holder, Fast and Furious, on steroids. You know, it's, it's you know, they would be, they would be claiming, they would have, you know, Benghazi levels of investigations and rage against, against whoever would be in office.
0: I mean, the Democrats would likely reciprocate in this situation, but I think the Democrats, you know, I think the Democrat Party needs to really gather itself together and to, you know, be able to work as one party, not as you know multiple factions that make up the Democrat Party. They need, I think, I think with more unity, Democrats would definitely reciprocate in this case.
1: Wait, sorry, how's this? Wait, how's this relate to Michael Flynn?
0: Well, what I'm what I'm saying is that Democrats would have a similar reaction to like you said, if Republicans had encountered a situation as well, they would be calling for impeachment as well. I just think what what I'm trying to say here is that Democrats and Republicans would act in similar ways to Mike. I just think the Democrats aren't able to formulate a strong as a, a strong of a response because I think the Democrat Party needs more unity.
1: Oh, so you're saying that um, Republicans are more unified in uh, going completely, you know, defending Trump def- with the right-wing media empire, that, you know, the Democrat Party doesn't have that. So you're saying that they wouldn't, even, even if they did do the same Things that that the Trump administration is doing by you know subverting the entire rule of law, you know they wouldn't be as successful, you know because because they don't have the infrastructure party or uh, ideological infrastructure in place to you know defend their actions. Is that what you're saying?
0: Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I mean, do you agree with that?
1: Yeah, yeah, I I, I think so. I mean, I mean, I don't think of a pre- uh, president Biden would do that, but I mean, if he's if he's elected, that is. So now, we present our first interview on Gen Zeros Talk Politics. Because there are two of us, and our interviewee has vastly different opinions than me and Joshua, we decided to try something interesting. Joshua is asking the questions, and I'm playing the devil's advocate to spark some debate and flesh out our interviewee's points. We had fun doing this, and we hope you like it. Make sure to give us your feedback on social media or by email at genzerostalkpolitics at gmail.com. And now, here's the interview. So... In order to get a wider perspective on how the June 23rd primaries went, I'd like to welcome a friend I personally met at the 2020 JSA Winter Congress, Mr. Sammy Gold. Sammy is a democratic socialist from New York who volunteered for Bernie Sanders in 2016 and 2020, worked on the primary campaigns of AOC, Jessica Cisneros and Jamal Bowman. Sammy, welcome to the show.
2: Well, uh, thank you so much. I'm uh, Proud to be here.
0: First question is, so the progressive wing of the Democratic Party scored some mm-hmm. huge wins in New York, and uh, as a Democratic Socialist, can you tell us what their mindset was going into these races?
2: All right. So obviously the uh, Democratic socialists and even just the socially democratic movement, again, I'm probably more of the conservative end of the Democratic Socialist movement, more so than other ones who are, you know, I'm not saying all of them are, but some of them are in the more Marxist vein I'm more in the socially democratic vein. But anyway, just, you know, getting that semantic outside. Um, this year has not been the best for the socially progressive, the social democratic progressive part of the part uh, the party. You know, Bernie Sanders lost the primary, you know, um, and Jessica Cisneros lost to Henry Cuellar. Marie Newman did beat Dan Lipinski, but so far it had not been the best, you know, overall movement for us. So coming into these primaries, you know, same area as AOC had that massive upset against Joe Crowley two years ago, you know, we were just craving for another thing like that. To show that our movement is still, you know, so to speak, in vogue, especially considering with the recent deaths of of George Floyd, uh, Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, Elijah McClain, etc., having these Black progressive candidates being able to, you know, say how this movement can be able to progress into the halls of Congress, it was very important. So me have Jamal Bowman going against the thirty year old, thirty year incumbent. Elliot Engel, and having Mondaire Jones possibly taking over um, Ida Loewy's seat, Siraj Patel taking over Carolyn Maloney's seat, you know, uh, Samelis Lopez taking over uh, Jose um, Serrano's seat. You know, this was a very big, big moment and we pass it with flying colors, in. what can I say?
0: Thank you, Sammy. Um, our next question is, so, As you said, Elliot Engel was kind of, was the one who lost here as with, you know, as with Joe Crowley in 2018, um, as an insurgent force beat him in the primary. So
2: what do you think Jamal Bowman did right to take down the 30-year incumbent? Well, you see, I think one important part we have to realize is demographics. You know, um, Elliot Engel, yes, has been in Congress since 89. And maybe, you know, that was the demographic that, You know, he was representing in the late 80s, early 90s, but you know, times have changed and it's getting more and more, you know, minority based, you know, more and more, you know, not white people are coming into the county. And, you know, this is the house of representatives, you know, they need to represent the people in that district. I think what really helped Jamal Bowman was first of all, that the temperature, I think a black progressive candidate, you know, really helped him a lot, especially with some gaps that Elliot Engel did For example, you know, saying that he wouldn't care if he had to speak about George Floyd being a primary, you know, saying the AOC's, you know, endorsement of Jamal Bowman. Just seeing that, you know, this insurgent, you know, this this non-politician, you know, uh, know, results-driven candidate was going to take over against someone who hasn't really brought the bacon, so to speak, to the district that, you know, Jamal Bowman, I think the 16th district, the 16th district. You know, I think that just was kind of the atmosphere that really helped Jamal Bowman take over Elliot Engel.
1: But if I, if I may jump in here, you know, Elliot Engel is the—he's um, the chair of the House Foreign Affairs mm-hmm. Committee. He's, you know, you know, he's—it's not like he doesn't do. It's not like he doesn't introduce stuff. It's not like he doesn't play a big part in, you know, the actual, uh, you know, day-to-day goings of congress it's not like he doesn't go you know, introduce bills yeah he, he he you know he has a role that you fit that he feel that he is that may feel he's good at billing but you know why why fix what's not broken
2: well first of all just a quick aside i think if you ever want to talk about new york politics you cannot do it in a boston accent you know again again as a as a Yankees fan, I just feel disgusted by what you have just done right now. But uh um, with the ahs and ahs. Anyway. Anyway, but to really get to the heart of your question. Um, well, if you do look at Elliot Engels' record as the chair of the House Foreign Relations Committee, first of all, probably the biggest oopsie daisy of his entire career was the Iraq War. And, and and everyone of course says, But who didn't support the Iraq war then? Well, first of all, you know, Bernie Sanders. But anyway. Second, most second of all, the majority of the House, the majority of the House, did not vote. I mean, especially the House Democrats did not vote for the Iraq War. I think he was one of the only democrats like one of the few House Democrats who legitimately voted for the Iraq War. I mean, if I look at the uh, record right now, I think he was, yeah, he was among the minority, and you know that is not good judgment. Uh, yeah, he was one of the eighty one Democrats. Of the entire, you know, I don't know, 126, because 81 is.
0: Thank you, Sammy. Um, so the other big story from New York is the election of two openly gay black men, um, Mondaire Jones, who will most likely replace Nita Lowley and Richie Torres, who will most likely replace Jose Serrano. What are your thoughts about this historic moment in American history, given that it is almost certain that they will be sworn into Congress
2: next year? Well, first of all, Mondaire Jones is an incredible candidate. I think. I think he announced his campaign a year or two ago. Like, don't, you know, don't take me as James of Fact on that source of information. But, you know, he was originally at the bottom of the pack, and look what happened. I mean, that's an underdog story, uh, you know, pure and simple. And the fact that we are going to have a LGBTQIA plus identifying Black man in Congress, I think he's the first one. I don't want to, you know, again, get that source of information wrong. But, you know, that's a massive moment of representation in our country. You know, when we talk about the LGB- LGBTQIA community, we often kind of separate them and, you know, LGBTQIA people of color. You know, and to finally, you know, be able to have that sort of representation in Congress just furthers the more perfect union idea that our founding fathers put into, put into the Constitution. You know, we are becoming a more perfect union by having that sort of representation in our Congress. And with Richie Torres, the first LGBTQIA plus identifying um, Latinx person in Congress, um, it's another great piece of representation. What can I say? It's a great day for representation in this country.
1: I mean, listen, I agree. I mean, um, I'm sad to see, Nita know, while we go. I'm, I mean, I, I, I like to, I like to work. I, I do, I do agree. It's good that we have more race representation in this country. It, 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 it uh, obviously, it shouldn't matter what your sexuality is, what your race is. You should have equal shot at uh, represent, representing where you, where you're from. Yeah. Um, thanks,
0: Sammy. Uh, next question concerns Kentucky. Um, both McGrath and our progressive challenger,
2: Charles Booker, are locked neck to neck. And what are your thoughts? all right but first of all i'm gonna say that amy mcgrath would be a terrible candidate in the first place i think she was the most funded house candidate of the 2018 cycle and she lost by like a seven point margin if i'm, if I'm sure it, like you know if you have like she like she got more funding than even like a max rose which is a like, incredible defeat than a laura kelly you know than a and a Mike Espy and so you know, she had like all this funding and was able to do nothing with it. So why should we trust her to be, you know, the biggest, you know, of all of I mean the biggest Herculean tech Mitch McConnell. You know, like you know, um why should we trust her with her record is so abysmal? You know like, you know, again, progressive doesn't necessarily mean that you're a better candidate. But I just believe that Booker would, and, but by definition, be, I mean, you know, he's more connected to the Kentuckian people, raised in one of the poorest districts in all of Kentucky. You know, he's been in the streets every day to fight for Breonna Taylor's police officer's arrest. You know, he's his own, like, like one of his own cheers is from the hood to the holler. You know, like, he's not just gonna represent one section of, of, the, of Kentucky's population, he's gonna represent all of them. And I think genuinely, Booker would be a, not just a better candidate. Would be a more representative candidate, than McGrath or McAvoy?
1: Personally, I support Mac- I support McGrath. Um, I mean, here's my quick. Kentucky is a plus thirty plus thirty R state. Okay, so uh-huh. how do you expect the progressive to win against Mitch McConnell in a plus thirty state? You know, if this was say um, Ohio or Florida or or uh, you know, a swing state. Okay, I I, I would say okay, there's an ar- there's some kind of argument to tip the balance. But Kentucky, really? I mean, I, I, McConnell is underwater more so than he usually is. He has to divert money back to his own campaign. They tried to loan out to Cory Gardner and Martha McSally, and it and, and why risk, Run, why risk running? someone who's more progressive? Why why is so someone who is more likely to alienate uh the more um leaning red voters that are fed up with McConnell? I mean I listen, I have nothing First against I, listen, I I I have nothing against Booker or any or any of the people on, we're talking about. I just I just feel like what exactly you know what what is the point? Like what like why take the risk? Why why not go for someone who's more you know, even though she lost by seven points. Obama lost a race before he became president like you know it, you know losing well, a I know. race isn't something you know isn't a complete you know arbor of stone to what you're going to do the rest of your career
2: so why not run against Andy Barr again you know why run for the Kentucky senate you know like 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 it's kind of like the same thing like you know like if Baylor Beto, Beto Ward should have run for you know senator against John Cornyn not run for president i mean like look it even got even worse and everyone's talking about it every democrat is gonna be painted as a socialist, you know, like like in Kentucky. You know, the only reason why Doug Jones won in 2017 was not just because of massive, you know, black turnout. I think more was leading by like a four point basis, if I'm pretty sure. I mean, I could be wrong about that, but you know,
1: our black women in Kentucky. Okay, if we're if we're gonna go on and say, you know, it's gonna be minority turnout that's going to, you know, call, you know bring Mitch McConnell down you know, even even more like, you know, the heart, heartland or, you know, um, the more red states, is progressivism really the answer here? Is it really, you know, to drive minority turnout at all? I
2: don't think that Charles Booker is going to be this radical candidate and everyone's going to be like, you know, I mean, if we're talking, if Amy McGrath is going to be a candidate, which I don't think is likely right now. I think, you know, like the more information we get from Louisville and Lexington, it's going to go for Booker. But anyway, if we have McGrath as a candidate, He's still up McConnell and the Republican Super PAC, you know, and, and, and I'm not saying always pick progressive candidates. Again, I just think that in the races that we really can win, we should get someone who represents the majority of the party.
1: I mean Sherrod Brown and Joe Manchin work for their states. Like they work in the areas they are. Like, yeah. Joe Manchin and Sherrod Brown won the midterms. They won because yeah. they represent the party because they represent well where they are. So it's just finding the right people. I mean, Ossoff, you mentioned Ossoff, Ossoff lost because, he, because he, you know, was questions about where he was and like where he actually lived, for for instance, like there was questions about that. I mean, you know, it's, it's not so cut and dry that um you know, we need to more or less turn to aggressives automatically because, mo- because more moderates aren't, aren't already been shown not to be elect- electable. It's more complicated than that.
0: Yeah, Sammy, actually, moving on, I'd like to ask you about North Carolina and the 11th district.
2: <laughs> well, you know, I think it's always good. To, I think it's always fun to see the uh, the Trumpists lose. Uh, Virginia, you know, the whole Denver Riggleman situation, you know, having to lose in a drive in convention because of same sex marriage. I think, you, know, you know, and hopefully next we get people like Ron DeSantis and, you know, Brian Kemp and Jim Jordan. Just to be to be kicked out by the dozen, so you know. Hopefully, this is the start of the blue wave. That's hopefully 2020.
1: Ah, uh, yeah, you're right. It's it's just hilarious watching uh the Trump can't the Trump back can't lose again. I love Roy Moore. That's just that that that's just hilarious. Um, you know, is a blue you know is a blue wave though in in the Senate inevitable because you know Montana Montana's I think the so. Democrats. Montana looks good. Colorado looks good. Arizona Arizona looks good. Maine looks. Okay, but then again, you're again you're dealing with fire here. You're dealing you're dealing with states that haven't gone for Democratic senator in decades. So I, I I wouldn't you know be so gung ho about blue wave as you as as you're as, as you're you know saying. But, but I, I I get it. I mean
2: here, obviously you know po- po- politics is you know has has the shortest memory imaginable. You know it like you know it, like like in, like in politics memory never lasts long. But I generally do think to look at the atmosphere right now with coronavirus, which isn't gonna end soon. You know, despite what Trump thinks. You know, like, you know, the, the, this whole, the whole George Floyd protest are not gonna end soon. You know, Steve Bullock is just the best candidate can have in Montana. I, you know, I moderate. Arizona's looking pretty Gucci. Moderate. Okay, again, you know, again, again, I'm fine with moderate situations where they're the only ones possible, right? Like again, I said, I'm fine with the Joe Manchin. So again, with, with Bullock, I'm fine. It's only in the situations where we have a possible chance of winning and where, you know, it's just not so cut and dry. We're definitely gonna keep the house. I think that's kind of settled and done. I think we're definitely, I think we're right now on the right path taking the taking the majority of the Senate. If, if, if it's gonna be a, a, a secret majority, I don't know. I mean, I think Jimmy Harrison is a good chance, but you know. That, that, that could just be the next or O'Rourke of the 2020 cycle.
0: Thank you so much, Sammy, you know, for uh, agreeing to do this interview.
2: No problemo. It's there very is. important here
0: on this podcast that we have, you know, a wide variety of political opinions from, you know, Democrats, socialists like yourself to, you know, Republicans, to Democrats, to moderates. And uh, thank you so much for contributing to that environment.
1: Yes, uh, no, thank you for uh, being a part of our first interview. And, you know, we, you know, we might call you back for uh, November. And that concludes this episode of Gen Zero Soc Politics. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And send us any and all questions regarding the news or politics, because your questions make the show.
0: Thanks for joining us, and we hope to see you next time.